0: everyone and welcome to the Collective Creamery Podcast. I'm Steph Angstadt. And I'm Sue Miller. And today we're bringing you an episode on Caputo Brothers Creamery. This operation is based in South Central Pennsylvania in York, a town called Spring Grove. And it was started in 2011 by Rin and Dave Caputo after they spent some time in culinary school in Italy. And their intention was to make real, authentic, Italian cheeses, specifically fermented curd mozzarella. And we're gonna hear a lot about what that means and how it's different from your regular grocery store mozzarella. This is a really interesting operation because it has sort of three prongs to it. In addition to producing really beautiful Italian-style cheeses, Rin and Dave also run a trattoria and a shop at their facility, La Tavola, which um, is where they offer dinners and lunches and classes. And the third side of their business is offering tours, food tours to Italy. So it's a really, it's a multidimensional business and it's really interesting diving into that. And I think most importantly, this conversation is about real cheese making milk and real cheese. Yeah. And relationships with the farmers. Caputo's has
1: found themselves in this unique position to kind of affect some some economic opportunity for small dairy farms here in Pennsylvania. I mean, they're on the uptick for production. Uh, Small farmers want to work with them. I think Rin said they have a waiting list of eight dairy farms. Because we're deep in this dairy crisis, the contract that Caputo's is offering their producers is very attractive, very attractive. And anyone who is a small processor or mid-sized processor I would love for you to listen in and hear her passion about how you, too, can work with regional dairy farmers in your community.
0: Right. It's a very good model of this collaboration between a value-added processor and a dairy farm and how that can grow and flourish. Right. And
1: if you're a retailer, you should get their mozzarella curds into your shop because it
0: goes far beyond Just Caputo Brothers Creamery. We were fortunate enough to start the interview with some fresh stretched (laughs) Caputo mozzarella. I I think
1: I ate a pound of fresh mozzarella (laughs) while we were doing the interview. That's why you're not
0: hearing a lot from me. I'm back here snacking. (laughs) Um, As always, you can learn more about our subscription and our events through um, www.collectivecreamery.com. You can follow us on Instagram. Please do. And we'd also like to make the plea, as always, to fill out our survey. It'll only take a few minutes. You can find the link in our show notes. We would love to know who you are, what you're interested in hearing about. It'll help us direct our conversations. So cheers. Cheers.
2: We always laugh when we get invited to go somewhere and mm-hmm. we'll be like, um, you know, can we bring anything? And people are like, I mean, you're bringing mozzarella. And we're like, yes, of course, we're bringing mozzarella. <laughs> yes. We wouldn't dream of showing up without mozzarella.
0: <laughs> oh man! Can you walk us through the flavor experience of this cheese?
2: Sure. So One of the big things that makes our cheese different, as I mentioned, is that it it actually goes through fermentation. Most mozzarella that's produced in America and um, all other mozzarella curd is made not through fermentation. It's actually made by taking vinegar and citric acid and adding it to milk. Essentially, Americans figured out that if they added vinegar or citric acid to milk, it would put the milk in a state that looked like this cheese called mozzarella. But technically, because it's never been through fermentation, it's really just coagulated milk. It would be like someone taking grape juice, putting it in a wine bottle, pouring it into a wine glass, and hoping that because it looked like wine and it was being served in a vessel that wine typically is served in, that the consumer would drink it and believe that it was wine. But... If grape juice has never been through fermentation, what is it? Grape juice, right? So when you taste real cheese, real mozzarella cheese, I should say, there's two ways to identify that it's, it's been through real fermentation. One is easy, the ingredients. You can We're all required to put the ingredients on the package. If you turn it around and you don't see the word culture, then it hasn't been through fermentation. If you see vinegar, you see citric acid, people even say to me, well, it said enzyme. Enzyme is just the coagulant. That's not actually managing the fermentation. So if it says, if it doesn't say culture or cheese culture, it hasn't been through fermentation. If you don't have the ingredient level uh, label in front of you, then the taste is the easiest way to identify it. So if I were to say to you, right now you're getting a little bit of butter on the front of your tongue and a lactic tang on the back of your tongue, that's what cheese does in our mouth. You are perceiving butter. People ask me all the time if we inject the cheese with butter. And I say, no, but the cows do. (laughs) But that's because they're not used to getting all of that butter flavor on the front of their tongue. Because when you drink milk you're not getting that nuance on the palate, right? It's just a sweet creaminess that goes across the palate. And that's what acidified milk mozzarella gives us. When we have a fermented mozzarella, then you get all that butter on the front of your tongue and that lactic acidity on the back of your tongue.
1: Beautiful. Great to know. Yeah.
0: That's nice.
1: Thank you. You'll have to excuse us. We're all...
0: Yeah, we're busy. Yeah.
1: <laughs> we're busy. We're busy. Don't mind us. We're having a little mozzarella with Rin Caputo. <laughs> From Caputo Brothers Creamery. Yeah, I yeah. guess it's
0: a good time to introduce Rin. Yeah. Let's introduce her. All right. Wow. Rin Caputo, thank you for joining us on this episode of Collective Creamery. And for this heap of fresh mozzarella, Sue and I have been really excited to talk to you because we... we talk a lot in our conversations um, over a few beers or a glass of wine about different issues that come up in the cheese world. And we've been dying to talk to you about real cheese and this very conversation about acidified milk versus um, actual fermented curd. And I was listening to your interview on cutting the curd which you've frequented you've been on three or four times yeah they like you over there they do
2: they do (laughs) they've been really good to us over the years and it's actually funny I think the last one I did was with uh, the mozzarella maker from Italy, Patrick Molinari who's now our head sales guy and yeah is working for us yeah isn't that funny yeah
0: Well, right. I just I like that Ann. Sach- I like the title that Anne Saxelby gave you, which is cheese evangelist. Yeah, mozzarella true. evangelist. It's yeah. true. Um, so I think we should just dive right in, and there's we have a lot of questions for you about just being you know a woman owner operator boss boss that you are. Total <laughs> um, boss. Yeah, total boss. Total boss. Um, but. Let's let's just dive into the conversation around real cheese. You gave us a glimpse of it, right? Mm -hmm. Which is how to identify between um, acidified milk mozzarella versus um, fermented curd. And I think, in a lot of ways, you have the hardest job in the world as an educator because a lot of us as artisan cheesemakers can make something like a wash dried tome that maybe people aren't familiar with, and tell this whole story, paint this picture for them of what it is that they're diving into. But with something like mozzarella, you have to you have to like decondition people's minds before you can re-inoculate them with the right information. You have to break down people's stereotypes on taste and texture and price, maybe the hardest one of all. And try to convince them that what you're doing is real, authentic, and traditional, and so much healthier and wholesome, and so much better for them, and worth the extra few dollars. I'm going to hire you to do our marketing <laughs> <'Cause>
2: you, <laughs> I mean, you—I feel like just summed up my entire
0: universe in one. Yeah, you've got a much, much more succinct battles. way that I'm able to do. <laughs> so, so can you tell us a little bit about your role as an educator, how it, it has evolved over the years, and like what are what are the challenges? Goodness. So, you know, I, I usually like to jest about
2: what we are doing in the mozzarella world. I'll call it the mozzarella revolution. I'll tell people that my job is to go around telling everybody that their baby's ugly. Um, because, right, <laughs> mozzarella is everyone's favorite cheese. There's a reason as Americans we consume four billion pounds of it a year more than any other cheese, more than even cheddar or, you know, American or Velveeta it's it's mozzarella and people from from the end consumer to the most knowledgeable cheesemonger or chef they think they know everything there is to know about mozzarella and and how could and and no one feels like their mozzarella is a problem which is the even greater issue is that they love their mozzarella and th- for whatever reason, they're quite passionate about it, right? It it came from their local grocer and they're stretching it every day and it's the real mutts, you know? And and they have these real strong ties to it because it is so approachable. I often refer to it as the white Zinfandel of the cheese (laughs) industry, right? You can- you can very easily feel like you are quite the cheese connoisseur by eating nothing else than mozzarella. And so here we come along and we say, you know that cheese you love so much and that you eat in so many different ways? It's not real. And immediately people say, oh, come on. Yeah, it's re- I mean, what do you mean it's not real? It says cheese right on the label. And they're not wrong. By the federal law, the definition is coagulated milk solids. So our government, for whatever reason, decided the definition for cheese labeling had nothing to do with fermentation. That doesn't mean it's founded in science, right? Okay. Can you imagine if we sold 4 billion bottles of wine in this country every year and it was just grape juice? And people didn't know. It's
0: labeled as wine. Why, how, would I not, how would I know that, right? It feels so inconsistent with, especially in the culinary world that you're dealing with, when you're talking to chefs and retailers and mongers, you know, they pride themselves on having this discerning palate. Mm-hmm. But for some reason, this is an exception.
2: Mm-hmm. Right. Because everybody has made that exception. I mean, the responses I hear are the consumer doesn't know the difference. The consumer doesn't care about the difference. The. It's always worked for me. So why would I change it to something different? The. It's mozzarella. Nobody really cares about mozzarella. It, it, it's. it. I don't know. You know. When, when Dave and I went to culinary school. We were going to become chefs. To come home. And open a restaurant. It wasn't like we knew we were going to be on this. mozzarella revolution journey. I, I, at that point I had no idea I was going to become the mozzarella evangelist. Okay. But. We were put on this path for a reason. And for a long time, if you had asked me, I would say it was to eradicate vinegar or citric acid and cheese and not just mozzarella, as we're talking about now, but also in ricotta. Because traditional ricotta which means re-cooked whey in Italian, has nothing to do with vinegar or citric acid. And again, as a byproduct, it's a way to take all of this albumin protein that's in the whey and harvest it into something very beautiful. It's a completely different cheese than ricotta, Right. I can make cannoli all day long, and when people taste it, they're like, why isn't it as sweet? Why isn't it grainy? You know, that's the problem with cannoli is they're always, you know, a little chunky and too sweet. Well, that's because ricotta doesn't work the way ricotta does, okay? So, you know, why doesn't my belly hurt when I eat your cheese? Well, because it's fermented, so the lactose has been removed. You know, when I tell people that real cheese has been lactose-free for thousands of years— They're shocked. They're floored. I
1: have no idea. But the
2: number one cheese we consume in our country, the number one cheese we consume in our country, for the most part, isn't cheese. So people don't know that. So again, you know, if you had asked me years ago, I would say, this is what my mission is. What I have found is and, and, and you know, for years I asked myself, why us? Why were we chosen to be these people who had to go around and say this? It's because the role we're supposed to play in the dairy industry in Pennsylvania. What I found is I have a platform to move a tremendous volume of cheese. As you guys know, you know, if I make an aged cheese, I might sell 10... 15,000 pounds of that a year. Mozzarella, I can make 500,000 pounds of that. The same customer that might buy 1,000 pounds a week from me of mozzarella might only buy 20 pounds a week of an aged cheese. So it, it's a vessel to move a lot of milk. And I happen to be in the middle of one of the largest dairy-producing regions in the country where there's a major milk crisis. That's why I'm here. Like that was why we were chosen to go that way. We're supposed to be here to not only change the narrative on mozzarella, but to also do it so that we could help these dairy farmers. And and so, is it hard? Is it really everyday people telling me I'm not going to pay that, or I'm I'm. I, Nobody cares, or all those things I said? Absolutely. But I know that there are 13 dairy farmers on a waiting list right now who, if I'm not out there telling people their baby's ugly, we can't help them save their farm. So maybe before it was my ego who just wanted to be right, but now it's like bigger. Now it's like, I need a vehicle, and these are the people who are in the car with me, and so I don't care. People are going to listen one way or the other, and hopefully there's enough people who will change their mind.
1: Yeah. The stakes are high. Yeah. Their stakes are high because you're surrounded by these farms. Yeah. And if they go out of business, it changes the landscape of where you live. Absolutely. So, I mean, we all need to be eating more cultured.
0: We do. I would say so. Can you tell us a little bit about kind of how you started with your first farm partnership and then how you've added more farms that you're working with and kind of what those relationships look like? Sure. So, you know, I'd love, there's a quote actually from uh, Liz Thorpe's book, American
2: Cheese Chronicles, where she's talking about what an American cheesemaker looks like. And she says, one of the greatest blessings about... American cheesemakers as artisan cheesemakers as a whole is that they're naive and thank God they are because if they knew what they were getting into none of them actually would.
0: Yeah. Blind, (laughs) inflated optimism. That's right. Yeah. Yeah.
2: true. Yeah. And you know I have to remind myself of that maybe like once a week because when we got into the business we were like oh we're just we're going to go just get some milk. Like we'll just go down the road and there's like dairy farms everywhere and we'll just go get milk. Like I didn't understand the amount of regulation and amount of the way the contracts work and milk hauling and co-ops and BTUs. And Oh my goodness. Like I had no idea. And so we were just like, we are just going to go get some milk. Like,
1: you know, are you talking BTUs, bulk tank units? Yeah, I am. Yes, <laughs> exactly.
2: Um, which are things I never thought I was going to yeah. need to know in my
1: life yeah.
2: or be one for right. that matter. Right. Um, and so, You know, one of my favorite stories to tell is that um, Dave, my husband, decided the second morning of our honeymoon that he wanted to um, quit his job in pharmaceutical sales and become a chef. That exact same week, that exact same year, so as we're having these discussions on our honeymoon, Apple Valley Creamery, our first partner, opened their doors. Oh, that's great. Wow. I mean... How crazy is that? Right. And at that moment, all they knew is that they wanted to be milkmen. They wanted to take out all of the middlemen and they wanted to distribute directly to the end consumer because 10 years ago, 12 years ago, they saw what was coming and they shifted. They made a change, much like you did, Sue. Right. Okay, something's coming. And we got to do something. We, we can't, can't just sit here. We
1: can't keep doing what we always did. That's
2: right. And so when we found them, we had no idea what a dairy farm looked like. Or we were just going to make cheese. It was going to be cute. I kept using the word cute. We were going to have this cute little creamery in our home. <laughs> and we were going to make 40 pounds of mozzarella and sell it at the local farmer's market. That was going to be the whole business. And like five years from now, maybe we'll make 60 pounds of mozzarella a week. Because the boys will be old enough to help me. And, I mean, we just, so we, I remember going to this dairy. It was like now it was in January or February and it was rainy and snowy. And I was like, Oh my gosh, what is this? You know, and yes, and exactly. <laughs> and come to find out like, you know, they're animals. So like, then we went around and checked out like 15 other dairy farms and we were like, Oh, okay. So this is what a dairy farm looks like. Good. We learned that.
1: Let's check that off the list. Did
2: I mention <laughs> we're naive? And so anyways, we, we ended up going back to Apple Valley. They're only 15 minutes from our home and we, we kept, what we would do is when we would go visit a farm, we would manage to get like a gallon or two of milk and we would make mozzarella out of it and we would test it side by side with Apple Valley and they kept winning and they kept winning and they kept winning and they kept winning. We kept getting further away and I remember being on this dairy farm like two hours away and traipsing through the fields, manure and everything. And it was freezing cold. I looked at Dave and I was like, what are we doing? Like, even if they win, like, why wouldn't we just go to Apple Valley? That's 15 (laughs) minutes away. And so we, we just kind of showed up and said, Hey, would you guys be willing to sell us your milk for cheese making? And they were like, yeah, we will. And thinking, you know, again, it was going to be 40 pounds, 40 gallons of milk a week. And eventually we outgrew their milk supply. So we had to bring on other dairy farms. Um, We're now on our third dairy farm.
0: How long did it take before you outgrew their milk supply? Like what capacity were you at in terms of your production?
2: Well, we had stops and starts. So we would, uh, what what would happen is we would outgrow our production facility. So this little plant that we had three months after we started the business, because we didn't know we were the only producers of fermented cheese curd in the country until Murray's called us up and said, hey, can we start buying 250 pounds of that a week? And we were like, I mean, we can't make that. (laughs) But I didn't know how to say no, and it was Murray's. You're like, of course course we can. (laughs) Yeah, right. And, and, you know, they were like, you know, how often do you deliver? And I was like, every two weeks. And they were like, great. And I was like, yes, that's what we deliver. (laughs) Um, but you know, we just kind of figured things out as we went and we outgrew our facility. Apple Valley allowed us to come over to their facility. It just so happened they were taking two bottling lines and combining it into one. They had space. So we went from about 150 square feet to about 250 square feet in their facility. We were supposed to spend six months there. We spent three and a half years. The last year and a half of that was building our own facility. So the first two facilities, we had not outgrown their milk supply because we only had so much capacity and production capability. We had more sales than we had cheese, but we had no way of making more cheese. So it wasn't until we moved into our own plant, now we have 8,000 square feet, that we actually needed to bring on other dairy farms. And so that was, it was because then we had the production capability to do that. By then, though, we had figured out that we had to be able to scale in a way that made sense because we'd spent a, a lot of years scaling in a way that didn't make sense and was very painful. And so even though the plant now can produce about a million pounds of cheese a year, we're just about the 200,000-pound mark. This year, we'll, that'll bump up significantly, probably three or 400,000 pounds, but... Yeah.
0: And you're working with three farms now, three dairy farms? Yes. Um, one farmer,
2: unfortunately, we had to let go. Um, that was a really tough experience. Young kid, you know, he was only milking six girls, Jersey girls. Unfortunately, he just, we. Uh, you know this, as cheesemakers, we have to have very high standards on the cleanliness of the milk. And we just couldn't get the somatic cell counts where we needed them to be consistently. And we tried everything we could to really get him in line. We brought in all kinds of people to help him and he just wasn't making the effort on his side. And it was, a, it was he was a hobby farmer. So I think, again, that was a good lesson for us is we needed someone who was on the farm and committed to what they were doing and that that's when we were able to bring on a much larger farm that that we just brought on in November.
0: It's important to stress the significance of this and we were just talking offline for a moment about how I mean, you use the word save and that's the right word. Like you're saving dairy farms right now who are getting paid nothing for what they're producing per gallon on the commodity market. And you're paying a premium for cheese making milk and allowing them to stay in business when others are folding.
2: Yeah, just to put some dollars and cents around it. So um, the Baum gardeners have been farming as long as they can remember. They've been on this particular land for 42 years. They had been with the same co-op for 42 years. Six kids, they had already shipped five of them out of the business, but the sixth child at 21 wanted to stay. And you know they were having a real hard time Growing to a place where they could continue to support themselves but also allow their daughter to stay on farm. And their mailbox price had gotten down to $12 a hundredweight um, with all they were getting, with the hauling charges that had gone up, the marketing fees that had gone up, and with the um, oversupply charges that they were getting hit with. Now, it's actually a really beautiful herd, um, about half Ayrshire, half uh, Holstein. Which a great good blend two blend blend, like. really good. Um, and they came to us honestly about a year ago and said, you know, what can we do to be considered to come into Caputo Brothers Creamery? And we said, listen, it's we do require our farms to be animal welfare approved, which is a certification body, but it's 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 very inexpensive, and as we're learning from Dan and Lori, it's actually lowered their cost on the farm from where it was before. They've also culled the herd down from about 106 cows uh, down to about 57. And so that's significantly lower cost of feed, of, of labor, of milking time, and all of that. In the first month, uh, so when they got their check in uh, halfway through December for half of the month, now we paid $28 a weights um, That's all in. So that's their mailbox price. We cover all the hauling costs. We do all of our own hauling, all of the marketing costs. And basically, they just so happened to get their check from us for half a month with half the size of Herd, essentially. And it was more than the entire month of their November check.
1: With all the cows. With
2: all the cows from the co-op. And so... It, they were going to shut down December 31st. We brought them on the week after Thanksgiving. And, you know, they. and now the daughter can stay on the farm and she doesn't have to go out and, you know, find another career. And this is a farm of 42 years was going to just, It was going to shutter. It was going to go away. And because there's so many farms shuttering, so there's just so much of an economic impact here, right? So it's not just that they're not getting paid. The cost of production for them is $18 a hundred weight. So it's not just that they were losing money on the cost of production, but if then they shut down, they have no income and no one's buying dairy cows right now. So these beloved animals who are family to them, would have gone off for pennies because they couldn't afford to to feed them anymore if they're not milking them. And, and, you know, I remember talking to Lori when we were making the conversion and bringing them over and, and she said, so many people have come to us and said, well, why haven't, you know, dairy, dairy farmers are in such peril right now. Like why haven't they been doing something about this? And she said, let me tell you, Because we're milking cows 365 days a year, every morning and every night. And pardon us if we didn't come out of the barn when we were supposed to and rally for ourselves. She was like, should we in hindsight? Yeah. But let me tell you what, we're in the barn. It's not like we're not working. (laughs) Right. You know? Right. And the people who are supposed to be advocating for us, the people that we're paying all of these fees to, who are supposed to be our champions, haven't done what they were supposed to do. And we as consumers haven't done what we're supposed to do as we continue to support commodity cheese or acidified milk mozzarella or whatever the really just cheap dairy is that we're buying. Because I can tell you that the co-ops aren't shutting down. The co-ops are still maintaining their profitability. So if things are getting squeezed. It's the dairy farmer who's getting squeezed. It just, it doesn't make sense. And as cheesemakers, you know, people say to me all the time, how can you afford to pay $28 a hundredweight? And by the way, we contract for a year. So they know that for the next year, this much milk they're getting, they can budget, they can run it like a business, imagine that, okay? And they said, how can you afford to do that? I can afford to do that because it's my responsibility as a cheese maker. If I'm gonna go out there into the world and say, taste this delicious cheese that I made, the number one thing that makes this cheese delicious, besides me and my team, is the milk that goes into it. And if I'm not paying a fair price for that, then I don't have the right to go out into the world and market my cheese. Because if I'm not paying my dairy farmer a fair wage, shame on me. And that's why every cheesemonger and every cheese aficionado that's out there, the first question they should ask is not, what discount can you give me? how, What's the cheapest cheese you can give me? The first question should be, what do you
1: pay your dairy farmers? There you have it. Amen. This is why we wanted you to hear from
0: Ren. Sorry, guys. Um, yeah. This is what we want. No, I love it. I mean, I, I try to tell my market customers that all the time. It's just these these cheeses, they look expensive compared to what you're seeing in the grocery store, but it's because we're paying the dairy farmer a premium for this milk, and it's not because we're making loads of money on it, by the way. Come right. see the barn. <laughs> yeah. Come see our conditions of yeah. where we make it, and you'll see that this is all just part of an agricultural process that we're trying to support and sustain, I, You know, we were just mentioning a moment ago, like, cheese is in this unique position to tell that story, to bridge the urban-rural divide in this significant way because it's magic, because cheese is so powerful. I mean, when I opened my uh, micro creamery in the Oli Valley, I had so many folks in the neighborhood saying... This is a traditional conservative Pennsylvania Dutch culture. No one will ever pay a premium for artisan cheese. But you're close enough to Philly. Good luck to you, you know. And now it's like my little farm stand does as good as an urban farmer's market on a weekend because people do come out for good cheese because of the taste and the texture and the experience and the nostalgia that people have. If they've ever traveled to Europe, they have a memory associated with something like mozzarella. And I think you even say... You want people to travel to Italy with just one bite. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It should take you
2: there. I mean, we as Americans have got to get away from eating to sustain ourselves. I mean, that's, people always ask me, what do the Italians really get that we don't? Italians eat for enjoyment, for satisfaction. They, and it's not like they eat elaborately, right? The food is quite, quite simple there, but an entire meal could be just this prosciutto and a little mozzarella, which is Cato-friendly, evidently. So maybe they got it right the whole time. But, you know, it's simple, but it's quality. You know, one of my favorite things to do in cooking classes when people tell me they can't afford the price of Parmigiano-Reggiano, for instance, I say, well, what do you mean you can't afford Parmigiano-Reggiano? They say, well, I have to use the stuff in the green can because it's so much less expensive. Right? I can't afford Parmigiano-Reggiano. And I say, okay. Let's do a side-by-side comparison. So if you take and grate Parmigiano-Reggiano and you pour out of the green can, right, grated Parmesan, whatever might be in there, cellulose, fillers, all of that wonderful stuff, and you taste them side-by-side to get the same flavor profile or impact on whatever dish you're putting that on is like one-tenth with Parmigiano-Reggiano what it is, the stuff out of the green can, So when you look at that, you're actually paying like double for what's in the green can because you're using so much more of it. Now you're also getting double the calories. You're also getting, you know, filled with whatever is inside that can. Okay, Cellulose, carcinogen, whatever. And all you had to do was get the real thing to begin with and just use less of it it just it doesn't it doesn't make sense when people see uh, we have this partnership with giant now and people see that our mozzarella is 10.99 a pound they're like 10.99 a pound then they pick out a ball and the ball is four dollars and they're like oh well that's actually all I want is the four dollar ball great
0: enjoy yeah less less is more in a lot of ways yeah absolutely the biggest compliment for me is when somebody says Oh, your cheese is so fortifying or it's, it just tastes so nutritious. Like it's like so densely packed with nutrients and flavor and you need so little to get this amazing experience. And yeah, I mean, you pay, you, you get what you pay for. Right. right yeah. Absolutely. Right. You know, and I think we just don't, we
2: just don't get that in this country anymore. And so again, to the narrative, and I think the more that we can bridge that gap between farmers and and people living more in urban centers. And to be fair, to get that message to farmers, because farmers don't support themselves. I mean, when Apple Valley, their milkmen, when they went direct to market, there was a major backlash from the other dairy farmers in the area who were not happy that they were doing this because they felt like Apple Valley was saying, what we make is better than what you make. And they said, "No, that's actually not what we're saying at all. We're giving, we are giving the consumer another option, and we're we're charging what we feel like is fair price for milk."
1: Right.
2: And the consumers have responded to that; they really have. But those sweet and dairy farmers are probably
1: going down the road and buying milk from Walmart. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's that's why it's really important to not be isolated in your work. Yeah. I mean, and let's face it, being a dairy farmer is really isolates yourself from the world. And it's just the nature of the job. You know, you're working all these hours. And so how do how do we, you know, keep this conversation open so that people can find another way? I mean, I often think it's by example, mm. you know, not that we are the example, but, you know, if people observe, you can go in and say, you have to do this, but right. people don't ever want to be told what to do. Sure. But when they can see a success story that begins to open their mind and maybe, maybe they stopped into Apple Valley to get a gallon of milk and we're like, Hey man, this store is pretty full of people. Right. Yeah. And every, what, what's going on in here? Yeah, absolutely.
2: I mean, and I think, you know, one of the things, you know, going back to what you say about dairy farmers being isolated, they also happen to be like the most amazingly wonderful people in the world. You have to be to to do this job. Really, truly, I mean, every single one I've met without exception, they're just the most amazing people. And that is What is really, to me, the greatest travesty in all of this is you're taking people who are some of the most hardworking, honest, good people in America and putting them out of a job.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, the farmers are so committed to the land and the health of the land, to the soil, to their cows, generations of these cows, to their families, Mm -hmm. to their communities. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, how many other small businesses do you get that level of commitment?
2: Yeah, I mean, I love when I'm in a barn and one of our dairy farmers is like, oh, this girl, you know, she's quirky. She likes to be the last one milked and, you know, she doesn't give great, you know, milk anymore. But I mean, her mom had her mom and I had her mom's mom and, you know, she's just part of the family, you know, so we, we keep her. I'm probably silly for not calling her out of the herd and you're just like, your heart just grows because this isn't just a, a business proposition that they're going to harvest milk from this thing. This is a member of their family that they care for and see in some cases probably more than their own children, you know? And it's, it's, um, it's really just, you know, Lori and Dan, when we were with them, I remember them telling me a story. They have six kids. They've never ever been on a family vacation together. They would either send the kids on vacation with like grandparents and they would stay behind. Or when the kids were old enough, the two of them would go and the kids would stay behind and milk. We got to do it. We got to do it, guys. We got to get out there. We have to support artisan cheese making. We have to ask hard questions at our cheese retailers about what their, you know, cheese are paying um, their farmers. We just, it's our, it, it's everybody always wants to know what can I do to help. That's what you can do to help. And it's not hard. Yeah, right. right? right, right. Um, it's not hard.
0: Can you talk to us about the animal, you mentioned the animal welfare approval um, is actually making some of your um, partnering farms more efficient. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us about that?
2: Yeah, so animal welfare approved, we felt like, we learned about it at the American Cheese Society Conference in Raleigh years and years and years ago. And it was really interesting. It was, my understanding is it was a group of Europeans who had some real issue with the health and well-being regulations that were either an oversight or the way they were put in to the organic dairy standard in the U.S. was really geared towards big farms and really wasn't taking into consideration the health and well-being of the animal. So they liked a lot of the parts of the organic standard with the non-GMO feed and the access to pasture and all of that. But they wanted to take it a step further, and not just for the mama, but also for the calves. So, for instance, they wanted to create a a pastured, non-hutched, um, non-force-fed veal program um, with the boys' um, calves that were coming and. You know, they they basically wanted to not have a three-year wait, which at that point it was. And the milk at that point was like $50 a hundred weight. So it was cost prohibitive for us to be able to afford, you know, as much as I would love to be all organic, I knew that people would not pay that for, for mozzarella. So I had to strike a balance between that. And We also wanted to be able to have a third-party audit as opposed to us going to the farm and saying, you need to do this, and you need to do this, and you need to do this. And they already had a really nice structure in place. So they used to be completely free. Now I think the audit is 100 bucks or something like that. Yeah. And it happens once a year to every six months. They come out. Um, And the best part about it is if there is a farm in transition, if you're going from conventional to organic, you cannot get the organic standard until you have made it through that process. But you have to be organic through the whole process. So here it's it's so expensive to go through that, but you're not actually getting anything more than the $12 a hundred weight to your mailbox. Okay. So it made it almost prohibitive for a lot of the conventional farmers, small farmers in our area to get into it where Animal Welfare proof comes in, does their assessment, and says, listen, you got to get the calves out of the hutches, okay? We're going to go ahead and give you the standard, but we're going to come back next month to make sure that that's been put into place. We need you to have this much more pasture land. Okay, here's the plan to do that. And so long as you can put a plan together, they'll give you the certification so that you can go ahead and get more value for your milk and work with you as you make this transition, and so it just kind of felt like a really nice way to not go to a dairy farmer and say, I'm going to judge you, and you're wrong, and what you're doing is wrong, and get those girls out of the barn. And it was like a nice, it was like, no, you know, there's times in Pennsylvania where cows need to be in a barn, but maybe not a freestall barn. Um, excuse me, maybe not a tie stall barn. Composting Bedpack, they actually worked with Apple Valley to help them design a nice composting bedpack barn you know so it was like a lot of things that just kind of took in the health of the well-being of the animal and because of that all the vet costs have gone down the actual utter health has been much better the amount of mastitis in the herd is a lot better so all of these things that are cost of doing business get improved by following these protocols sure.
0: that's amazing I didn't realize that the process was as uh, welcoming as it is
2: yeah, very much so. Um,
0: okay. Now, do we want to talk a little bit more about dairy? I have some questions about being a woman boss, but <laughs> well, I mean, I think this is the woman to ask.
1: <laughs> <laughs> she might have an opinion. <laughs> Maybe. Sorry. Very opinionated. Very I'm opinionated. Hoping, <laughs> I'm hoping. So I'm,
0: I'm still new in this in this operational management sort of journey as mm-hmm. being a solo operator, but. Um, I've often called my pal Sue Miller with some frustrations about maybe I think being in this like powerful role, operational role, management position as a woman dealing with a lot of contractors and electricians and plumbers and you're doing construction all the time and Mm -hmm. engineering And you tend to be, a lot of times, the only woman in the room. Sure. You're trying to get a little bit of credibility Mm -hmm. for your requests and not being treated like some, you know, ignorant fool. And it can be so frustrating. Sometimes it feels like you're, you know, going back in time almost. Mm. Um, So, and you you just, you're so inspiring. And you're so good at just managing this whole team of people and all of your contracts and telling your story. And I want to know... Where you find your inner strength, (laughs) but also what are some lessons that you've learned about, I guess, like using your power for good?
2: Yeah. Well, thank you for the compliments.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's, it's definitely all of those things. I mean,
2: there are a million times that a contractor will show up and ask to speak to Dave and before Dave can say anything and they've asked a million questions, he'll say, you need to talk to my wife. And they'll be like, what? Um, you have some stories about
0: that. Yeah selling, yeah. selling cows and yeah.
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, she couldn't possibly know. When we were building the plant, you know, I was the general contractor for it. And, y- you know, people would get very frustrated with me um, when I would not just take no for an answer. And because I, I think because I was a woman and. You know, I think because I have a very bubbly personality when I'm not, you know, being the mozzarella evangelist, you know, I am. I'm usually very positive and very happy and I'm silly in a lot of ways and I like to be jokey. And so people in that way often think, well, she can't be the person who's actually running this. I'm a mom, which is actually more complicated because men are allowed to be very dedicated to their business and, and not be involved in 100% of their children's lives. But women are not. Like, there's a very interesting dynamic that happens there that, you know, if Dave shows up to decorate for the Christmas play, they're like, where's Ren? You know? <laughs> <laughs> Ren's working, you know? Um, no, I, I, they're, they're very supportive. But it's, you know, I think, I think for me the real challenge is always being okay with failure you know there's not a day literally a day that goes by i was back when i was in i.t before we went on this journey i was living out in the silicon valley area and we used to go up um, skiing all the time and i was skiing with one of my best friends and he wanted to go down this run of trees that made me very nervous and i wouldn't go and he said what's your problem why won't you ski this i said i don't want to fall and he said, "Ren, if you're not falling, you're not skiing hard enough. <laughs> true. And somewhere in my brain that's stuck. And, and I, I think that all the time. Like, if I'm not failing, then I'm not pushing hard enough. And my staff, if they fail, they get very nervous, right? Because we have like 22 employees now. So it's a lot to manage. And if something goes wrong... You can tell they're immediately like, I'm so sorry, you know, and I'm like, it's okay. Like, we're okay to fail because we are pushing the envelope so hard and so fast right now that it's bound to happen. If you're not pushing and you're failing, now we got a problem, okay? But if you pushed because, you know, you were trying to get that shipment out on Thursday, the last day of shipping, and, you know, it didn't go to the right person, but you were really trying to do the right thing, it's okay. It's okay. So I think for me, that's what I've really had to become comfortable with is failure. Because people from the outside looking in are like, oh my gosh, you know, you're sitting on a gold mine, or you're printing money or you're living the dream. That one's my favorite. You're you make it look so easy. Dream, <laughs> you know? And I'm like, if this is your dream, we, I mean, we need counseling, <laughs> you know, but no, it's, it's because I am very comfortable with failure. And I think that is what... So much of us who are entrepreneurs, who are trying to push the envelope, who are trying to be outside the box, that is something that when we allow ourselves to fail, and epic failures are the best. (laughs) I have a mentor, and when we have an epic failure, I'll call him, and there's usually tears, and I'll be explaining to him what happened. And 100% of the time, he always responds with the same thing. How do you know it's a bad thing? How do, you're assuming that what's happened is bad, but you don't know that. So how do you know it's a bad thing?
0: Well, I know
2: because because of this and that. And he's like, but do you do you know that yet? Do we know how the rest of this story looks? I, no. You're right.
0: <laughs> Good point. Point taken, right? <laughs> you were talking about it, like that you could be pretty much be a professor of business at mm-hmm. this point. Um, and you mentioned like all the wrong ways to scale up. Mm. What are some of those hurdles? Like did you My question is always, you know, do you um did you overexpand before you were ready or was it that you underinvested when you should have really just built big enough to grow into?
2: So we've tried all of it, yeah.
0: <laughs> um,
2: you know, <laughs> Dave and I started the business in our home. We did an addition onto the house. And like I said, the business plan that I spent a long time writing that went away in about three months. Um, We had enough capital from our previous life to be able to have this little nano creamery in our house, 40 pounds of mozzarella. Like nobody was making a lot of money on that, but we had these you know, babies at home. Our sons, the Caputo brothers, are actually only seventeen months apart. And society said I needed to raise my children. Right? I'm a mom. Like you got to be there. And but I, I am a businesswoman. Like from you know, you asked me before where my inner strength comes from. Like some girls like grow up like I want to be a dancer. I want to be like an actress, or I want to like be a lawyer and. Like my Barbies were like seated around a conference table. like
0: (laughs) like, I don't doubt that. You know, when
2: people were like, what do you want to do when you grow up? I was like, (laughs) I want to run a business. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I was wearing, like I would take my mom's business suits and wear them to like high school. Because like, I just, I loved that like, you know, feeling that you got when you were in a suit. And a red suit was even better. It was like, you know. My idol growing up was uh, Angela Bauer from Who's the Boss, right?
1: <laughs> right, there you go. I mean,
2: she was this, like, executive, advertising executive, and, like, some <laughs> guy ran her house, and I was like, this is, like, amazing. Like, that's I, – so I, I always kind of had that in me, and – so when we started the business, it was more just because I needed that outlet. I needed that like place to do this. And I had this like cross to bear, right? We'd had all this great mozzarella in Italy and I couldn't for the life of me figure out why it didn't taste like this in this country. And so the only thing I knew to do was the right thing, which was to make it the right way and to sell it to people that I felt like would care. And so we had this little pot of money. And when Murray's came along, it, I, I never... Knew how to say no my whole life. Whenever I was asked to do something, it was always yes. The answer was always yes. And as my team would tell you, we'll figure it out. That's what we do. <laughs> we could have like business cards that say that. And I would say yes, and then we would turn around and be like, I don't know. We'll figure it out. You know, that's what we do. And so when when we said yes to Murray's, and then all of a sudden, Saks, to be Cheese, and the New York Times, and Food and Wine Magazine, and we didn't have the capital. We just didn't have the capital. We didn't have the cash. Um, And so, and now we're going back and forth to Italy, trying to make sure we're making the cheese like the perfect way. So there's all that cost associated with it. But because we were pushing that hard, we developed a restaurant because that was a way to bring cash into the business and people were willing to listen to what we were doing. And it gave us an outlet to sell cheese. And because we started the restaurant, we started the trips to Italy because these people became so in love with our story and what we were doing. They wanted to go see the Italy that we knew. And because we started these trips to Italy, it covered the cost of us working with cheesemakers over there. So we would go, we would run this tour, we would make cheese on the front end and the back end. And again, it brought cash into the business so that we could grow. And, you know, my mentor was, uh, it was someone who came on a trip to Italy with us and that trip that he happened to be on was three days after we heard from the Small Business Association that we weren't going to get the loan that we needed to build the plant. That nearly killed me. I mean, to this day, I still get emotional thinking about that moment after nine months of, of building my life's work of paper. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and telling these people every little aspect of my business to get this loan to build this plant, they said no. And I just couldn't imagine a path forward. And I had a whole team of people looking at me like, we're going to figure it out. That's what we do. And I'm like, failure is all around me right now. And three days later, I'm on this trip and this gentleman who graduated from Wharton and used to run Anheuser-Busch and then bought his own bakery and built it and sold it. And and we're talking at dinner one night, and, and he was like, I'm going to find you private funding. And he found us the money to build the plant. And so all of these things, because we were pushing so hard and because I didn't say no, actually helped shape the business. It also helped me realize that I was on the right path and that as long as I believe in the path, that even the failures as they come will work out. Because I now know I'm here to make an impact, as big an economic impact as I can on the Central Pennsylvania dairy farmers. And I know that I'm here to lead the Matzo revolution. And those two things are no longer mutually exclusive. They're together. And so that's what I think makes being in this business so much easier, even on the hard days where you're just, I'm over it. I said it this morning. I was like, I'm over it. I'm just over it. But then you come and you do something like this and you hang out with people who are equally as passionate and you talk about your story and you're like, yes, that's what we're here to do. And I think as business owners, as entrepreneurs, that's what we need. We need to get together with people who are like us because when we're together, we're not weird.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Well, even before, I mean, just before talking to you today, I don't think I realized what sort of a position you guys are in to make this impact you know because of the nature of mozzarella right. being the number 1 cheese consumed in the United States because of the nature of the fact that you are buying your non farmstead that you're buying from other farms so you're establishing these contracts and saving dairy farms and the fact that you are able to so you know in such an inspiring way tell your story because none of this would exist if you couldn't tell the story right and you're out there as an educator and a promoter, and you know, preaching the mozzarella evangelism, <laughs> yeah. um, and that's that's all unique to who you are, too.
2: Yeah, that's pretty- yeah. I mean, you know, I think in life we're always wondered, like, what are we called to do? And and so many times, I think the world is trying to tell us. And you know, I speak at a lot of engagements, Rotary clubs, you know, that type of thing. People ask us to come and talk and. I always use the same analogy, and it's that as humans, we are deathly afraid of making that right-hand turn, that sharp 90-degree turn, right? Because there is either a stereotype or there's a legacy in our family or there's tradition or there's social norms or whatever that is. And so because of that, we're supposed to fit into that lane, And that's, and if you'd make that 90 degree turn, well, that's the weird land over there. Right. And so I think so many times in life, that opportunity is right there, but you're not willing to look over at it. Okay. Or you're scared or you're nervous or whatever. And so many times, time and time again, when we've made that heart, right, we didn't start a mozzarella curd business. That's not what we set out to do. We were going to make 40 pounds of fresh mozzarella and sell at the local farmer's market. We didn't know we'd created the country's first fermented cheese curd until Maurice told us. And, you know, three months into the business, we had to figure out, do we want to make fresh mozzarella and sell at the local farmer's market? Or do we want to go on this curd path that we don't know anything about and never had a business plan for? We took the turn and look where it got us, right? So, I mean, I think that is so important. And you know, just to, I always take little gems from different people. And, and one of our good friends who also has his own business, he said I was t- complaining about something at one point. And he said, "Ryn, when was the last time you came up to periscope depth?" I was like, "What do you mean?" I he was like, like "When was the last time you came up to periscope depth and looked around?" Right. He said, "Because when you're in your business, you're here, you're focused, you're you're paying attention to what's right in front of you, and." Because of that, you don't often take an opportunity to go up and look around at what's going on. And when you do, it's shocking, particularly as the business grows, because then you can't have your hand in everything that's going on like you did before. And so that's something that I really try to practice is just maybe it's once a week, maybe it's once a month. It's when I have time and I come up and I look around and I make adjustments that are necessary because it's, it's, um, it's important to continue to keep the business healthy.
0: Do you have a ritual that marks periscope mode? Is there like wine involved mm-hmm. oh, yeah. or a There hike? should be.
2: That should <laughs> okay. be. No, you know, um, I spend a lot of time in the car. Um, and so a lot of times I, I know that I'm doing it when I'm not listening to the radio. I'm very musical. I love to have music music plays in my life. 24 hours a day, pretty much. And when I'm in the car and there's no music on, I know that I'm in that place. And, and really having this mentor that I meet with once a week has made really a big impact for me as well, because running a business is very lonely, very lonely. You know, it's very isolating, like you said, but it's, Feeling the pressure of having to make all of these decisions on your own and, and having another voice in your head is is really, really helpful. That's something I encourage a lot of business owners to do. And look, this gentleman has no affiliation with cheese at all, but he is a successful businessman, and he has gone and done the things, and so he pushes me in ways and gives me perspective that you know, I, I don't all always think about because i'm in it sometimes you come up to periscope depth on your own sometimes somebody reaches down and pulls you up and like shows you around you
0: know (laughs) he's probably a better mentor because he's not a cheese maker
2: yeah absolutely
0: can you tell us a little bit about the cheeses that you're making um we tasted and talked a lot about mozzarella which is a delight um and we didn't really get a chance, a chance to talk too much about your ricotta and also some of your other pasta filata cheeses that you guys make over there. So
2: because we studied in Italy, um, because we studied in Italy and we learned the Italian tradition, so we did not have the influence of knowing anything about cheese prior to learning from Italians. So that really completely changed our viewpoint of cheesemaking, sure. not only because Italians can't waste anything. They literally use, they can find a way to use. So when you make milk, when you make cheese, you start with milk. You go through the fermentation process, you add the enzymes to coagulate, you coagulate You go from fluid milk to the gel state, which looks like a pudding. You cut that, the curds go to the bottom, and the whey comes to the top. When you skim that whey, you can re-cook the whey, and that's what ricotta translates to in Italian, re-cooked whey. Now, most, or many, I should say, American cheesemakers do one of two things with the whey. Instead of converting it into ricotta, they either dump it and spray it on their fields or they dehydrate it and get the whey protein out, the albumin. There might be other options, but I guess feeding pigs. Feeding pigs. Ah, also <laughs> wonderful. Also wonderful. Right, thank you. Yes. Thank you for that. Love girl. feeding pigs. <laughs> um, one of my favorite dishes in the entire world is a Parmigiano-Reggiano whey-fed hog, which... Ooh. It's really special. Yeah, yeah. Um, And you should hear those hogs when the wave starts coming in; they go crazy (laughs) for it. Oh my gosh! (laughs) Um, So absolutely, or or feeding other livestock with it. I should have mentioned that it was a good oversight. So what we found is we didn't have an outlet for right we're buying milk from somebody so we didn't have an outlet for spraying fields we didn't have an outlet for feeding hogs at the time we do now um and we, when i looked into whey dehydrators they were either they could do about a half gallon at a time <laughs> <laughs> or they could do about a million gallons at a time and there was nothing in between and and One, because I came from this Italian cheese making tradition and I couldn't I couldn't possibly stand to see it going down the drain. And two, because my background in I.T. also led me to Six Sigma and lean thinking and that type of thing. You know, I needed to harvest that. And so, you know, we initially didn't have the equipment to do it. And so we would spend hours cooking this way—sometimes four, four, five, six hours, depending on how much whey we had, um, because we just couldn't stand to see it go down the drain. And it was also so delicious, because ricotta, the American version, when they named it, they just took the wrong Italian word. It should actually be called cotta, because it's just cooked milk with vinegar or citric acid. And if I can be flip and probably insult a whole lot of people, you know, I, it always kills me when I'm working with a chef and I'm having them, you know, taste our fresh ricotta and, and they're like, um, oh, you know, I don't need to taste that. I make my own ricotta in-house. I'm like, oh, did you learn that in culinary school? Did someone teach you how to pour vinegar into milk and you do that all by yourself? Wow. That's awesome. So it's flip. I know it's flip. And I know there's cheesemakers who do that. And so I'm, I don't mean to be insulting, but... There is something, it's much more challenging to actually get the whey at the exact right pH that it needs to be and recook that whey with no vinegar or citric acid and actually harvest that's it the there. That's
1: the key. Yeah. The right pH. That's right. right.
2: Yeah. And And again, this was all knowledge that didn't exist. And so that's why we kept going back and forth to Italy. Like the first batches of ricotta that I made, I had 40 gallons of whey and I would get like, three pounds of ricotta out of it and I was like I know something's wrong what just happened yeah something wrong (laughs) where did it go yeah and uh and so you know I actually remember being in the original creamery and and walking in and saying to Dave he was on the couch and I was like hey we need to go to Italy and make ricotta for a week and he was like okay and I was like okay this was like Thursday. I was like, can we leave Sunday? Cause <laughs> I need to know right now. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> and he was
2: like, sure. And, and Sunday we were on a plane with the boys and we went to Italy and we literally spent a week, um, doing nothing but going to cheesemakers and saying, can we come in and skim way into ricotta? And they were like, Sure. I mean, once you've done it, you know how hard it is. And you're like, (laughs) yeah, come all day long. You can do whatever you want. (laughs) And within 30 minutes, I knew exactly what the problem was. I needed 5% milk back in. Um, I thought I could do it with 100% whey. But anyways, we did it for a whole week, just to be sure. But then we came home. I told Dave, I said, give me a couple weeks to smooth out the process. And then we'll figure out how to sell the ricotta. And so we did the first make, and I took forty pounds of whey, added forty gallons of whey, added um, four gallon, no two gallons of milk, and we had like thirty pounds of ricotta. And I was like, "We're in the ricotta business." <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> Who wants to buy it? Let's
2: call the neighbors. <laughs> yeah. Remember, I said two weeks. Um, so yeah, so the ricotta is something that's very special. It's completely different than ricotta. Um, you know, most people don't realize that cheesecake when it came to this country had nothing to do with cream cheese. It was a Southern Sicilian dish called torta al ricotta. And if you take real ricotta and you simply just whip it with a little sugar or honey or lemon zest and bake it, it's the world's greatest cheesecake. Um, meatballs, you know, you don't put eggs in meatball mixture because the reason we put eggs in meatball mixture is, is to bind the meat together. Well, it's the albumin that's in the egg white that binds it together. But then you, you get all of the other parts of the egg that make it a little tough and chewy. A couple scoops of real ricotta, which is this ultra-high concentration of albumin, gets you the exact same thing. So cannoli filling. I mean, the travesty that is oh. cannoli filling in this country. We <laughs>
0: love those cannolis, yeah. don't
2: we? Yeah.
1: Remember we just ate the cannoli filling?
0: Yeah.
2: With, With a such a treat when, we yeah. when we came to your place for that. Yeah. We wanted yeah.
1: to go back for seconds. Yeah. yeah. Or <laughs> thirds. You should. Yeah,
2: it's, you know, I think, and it's, like, super low in fat, ultra high in protein. Um, it emulsifies the way it's supposed to because it's gone through pre-fermentation, so it's actual cheese. Like, it just is a completely different product. And so people make fun of me when they're like, oh, you're saying it like the snobby Italian girl, and I'm like, I'm Irish. Um, but it's the only way for me to be able to... Um, to discern between the two, because unfortunately the Americans just took the wrong word. Yeah. We make provolone, um, or young, small provolone called provola, which is what the original cheese is. Provola just means aged mozzarella. We make, um, in the Calabrian tradition, it's where we learned... Cheese making originally. Calabria is the toe of Italy. And down there, they have very aggressive, very flavorful cured meats. So they want a very mild, young cheese to go with it. And so young provola is the pairing. Provolone really comes from northern Italy, where the cured meats are much more delicate prosciutto, brazzala. So you need a more tangy, hard, you know, longer aged provolone. Um, we make one with calabrian chili peppers, it's got a little kick to it. Uh, we do a hay smoked mozzarella, which is one of my favorites. We actually smoke on the hay cut from the pastures that the cows graze on. Mm-hmm. Italians don't believe in smoking um, delicate young cheeses like mozzarella over hardwood or liquid smoke because it's it, the smoke overpowers the delicateness of the cheese. But with hay smoke, you get all the smell and all that just kind of fun things that the smoky smell brings out in your mind and your palate, but is very delicate on the palate, which is great. And then our award winner is the Vecchio, the Ricotta Salata, which you guys have featured in the Collective Creamery before. And uh, and Sue actually was the person who told us we won.
1: <laughs> I was the messenger. You were. And...
2: Um, if I, I broke my vocal cords that day, screaming through the house as I got your text message that we... It was pretty exciting. Yeah, it was... Um, we had just gotten back from Italy the day before, so we weren't actually at the American Cheese Society Conference. And we had um, qualified for a good food award, but not been a finalist for this vecchio. And we said, well, you know, we don't usually enter competitions um, because our cheeses are largely misunderstood. And we just said, we're going to go for it. Let's put the Vecchio in there. And to take home, you know, best traditional Italian cheese produced in North America against like the giants that are in that category, um, was one of the coolest moments. And because of that, we got to go into the world food awards and that cheese won a bronze medal, um, for that, which was just super exciting. So, and that was even against Italians in the category. So that was like a kind of just really special moment, um, but that cheese is a, a cheese that we discovered because Slow Food came to us and asked us to help rescue this cheese called Ragusano, which is a large format um, provolone made in Ragusa, Sicily. And through the research that we we went through identifying that cheese, um, we learned about this cave aged ricotta salata which was less salt and super funky rind. And it's um, like, that's just a really special cheese. And yeah, we've been sold out of it for a long time, but we're back into big production with it now. So we're excited.
1: Yeah. it's great. We took a wheel of that to the governor's reception. Oh, that's awesome. We did. And it was really great that you, yeah. that we had that. <laughs>
2: well, it's cool because it's so white because it's made from the ricotta that everyone thinks it's a goat milk cheese. Uh, but it's, no, it's cow and it's, yeah, it's our fat-free cheese. Like all the butterfat that's in there comes right out. So, yeah, yeah it's really great.
1: The ragasano though. Mm. We need to talk about that. We do. We need more of that in our lives. can you just kind of, how is it that Slow Food came to you? I mean, I think that is just such a special project. Mm -hmm. And kind of intimidating at the same time to take on something so specialized as that. Yeah,
2: you know, I think had we not already been leading tours to that, we went to Ragusa every year. And... So, Crown Finish was the conduit there. So, Crown Finish Caves. Yeah, Yeah. so we were doing this special cheese for the Whole Foods in Philly um, that was aging at Crown Finish Caves in Brooklyn. Uh, Just a a young provolone um, with the Calabrian chili pepper called Ferno. And uh, through that, there was, I didn't even understand the tradition behind it, but I guess when Italians first started immigrating to the US, the five cheeses that they were really had access to Parmigiano Reggiano, Pecorino Romano, um, uh, Mozzarella, Ragusano. Ragusano used to be one of the most oh. common um, oh, no idea. cheeses that they could bring from Italy. It's this super large format. You've seen it.
1: It would be durable. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely, right? right?
2: And, you know, makes sense in the shape that it's in. It's this big, huge rectangle block. It looks like a piece of curb.
1: It does. Yeah. 100%. (laughs) Yeah.
2: And it hangs just with one rope. It is pasta filata, so it is stretched just like a provolone, just like a mozzarella. Um, But it's very unusual to have provolone in the deep south of Italy because it gets so hot. Oh, I see. And... Before the dawn of refrigeration, they wouldn't have had the ability to keep that cheese from going off in these super hot summers. But Ragusa has these really cool natural caves. And so basically on the slopes of Mount Etna, you have these like crazy caves And, you know, they're making this cow's milk cheese and stretching it, making this beautiful regatta salata out of it. And we knew it and we loved it. And so when Benton talked to us about it and got Slow Food involved, we said, yeah, let us see what we can do. And, you know, because we are so, (laughs) such purists, we took our cheesemaker, our head cheesemaker weighed over and... You know, it was like, oh, well, it could only be made in this wooden box of this particular wood at these exact dimensions. And Wade was like, I know a master carpenter. And so we, like, searched out this exact wood and these exact dimensions. And so, like, what we make in our creamery is the exact replica made the exact way, except with food safety as an eye, um, that you would get in Ragusa. And, but the problem was we made two and it has to age for like a year and a half, two years and they're, and they're massive. And what did we know? This was not our, like, so we made four actually, we made two that we aged in our cave and we sent two to crown finish and cause every cave is different and creates a different cheese. And, and then at the American cheese society this year, we had, we had one left we had eaten the first one. And it was so good. And when you guys were like, can you guys bring some cheese to this, like, Pennsylvania cheese event? We were like, oh, the Ragusano is perfect. And here, like, these are, like, the top cheese mines in the country. And we'd never tasted this.
1: <laughs> it was so good. It was
2: great. It was really, It was really great. Good. It was
1: pretty monumental. And it's a shame we didn't have more space in that, at that brewery to, like, bring it up. In the total focus for everybody. Oh, no. I, I, mean, I it thought was, it was so special that you it brought was, it.
2: Yeah. And, you know, every it was so funny because so many people were like, um, you know, how many do you have? You know, <laughs> and, and we were like, this is it. This is, you know, the one that exists in the world. And they were like, well, how quickly can we buy it? You know, Jabruno Brothers was like, you know, can we go ahead and like pre-order? And, and we were like, um... We don't know. Like, we don't know if we can actually produce this on any grand scale. And then we came back all excited, and Wade was like, yeah, we're going to make a ton of ragusano. And we made six that are currently hanging in the cave. And um, we haven't made any more since. So, like, like next November, maybe. Absolutely. (laughs) Next November. Yeah. So, yeah, it was, I mean... It's just a really special cheese, super delicious. Completely different. All of our cheeses are pretty young, pretty mild um, in flavor and the Ragusano is just a punch in the face like it's just super lactic and tangy and
1: it makes me think about um, you know when you go to De Bruno Brothers down mm-hmm. at the old Italian in the Italian market. All those old provolones are hanging in there and mm-hmm. and there's a whole clientele that really wants that you know, that old school Italian flavor. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it makes so much sense to me now that you're telling me this, that that is a cheese that came over that emigrated here to the U.S. and has been lost here in well, the culture. So maybe that long aged provolone, you know, has was easier to do. Absolutely.
2: Well, and here's the thing. It's a tough life in Ragusa. And so as these cheesemakers are and they don't really have much of a market anymore. And so as these cheesemakers which now most of them are like 80 plus as they are dying, no one is picking up the tradition. So Slow Foods idea was, listen, if we can make a big deal about Ragùsano and get it back into the American narrative for cheese, then this will reinvigorate the Ragùsano you know makers in, makers sicily, in right. sicily and it's kind of you know as the as the us goes so goes the world kind of thing and and this will become much like barata you know which was little known to anyone outside of Puglia up until 10 years ago and is now literally everywhere you go this was their hope you know and it's it's still the hope we just unfortunately i mean you know we can only we can only
1: save so many things at once we got to take care of the dairy farmers <laughs> yeah, we got to take exactly. care of the acidified milk people <laughs> we got to save ragasano <laughs> a lot of people on the list right? yeah. so while you're talking about this have you ever crossed paths with Elisa Van Amberg she's up at her husband is a professor at Cornell and she's one of the founders of Tomino cheese right up there in Ithaca she comes from Italy and she was stationed um, I can't imagine. Let me think about this. But she was part of the Ragasano Consortium. Oh, wow. So I feel like I need to connect you with her. Absolutely. And now they're making cheese. They've just won an American Cheese Society Award for one of their cheeses this past summer. Um, but I would love to connect the two. Of Absolutely. Because she's, you know, she grew up in that area and worked for that consortium. So. Maybe there's some. She's insight. gonna be pretty
2: cool then, because that's just yeah. such a neat
1: area. Of it Sicily, is, so. and now here she is living in Ithaca. <laughs> you know, making radical, difference. <laughs> yeah, <it's> radical difference. Yeah, radical difference. It's a small world, isn't it? It is. It is.
2: You know, and it, there's so much about the cheese world that, as you find, you know, we are all connected, it, and it's and it's really cool. I think even even for us. As we feel like we're out in kind of this middle of nowhere, Pennsylvania, you know, there are people who are really searching to find the answer. And I think the more we do things like this, I mean, it's incredible what you guys are doing to really bring attention to and an, that educational aspect to what just people just don't know. Right? Because ignorance is bliss. And if we don't know any better, then we can just keep going about our lives. Once we know, then it's, now we have to decide. And so, you know, the more we can all connect
1: each other, then we're not weird. (laughs) We are not weird.
0: (laughs) So what, Rin, what's your, well, you've given us a few calls to action. But um, for those people listening to this podcast, what would you love for them to know um, in light of the current dairy crisis, in light of the work that you're doing, and how can they follow your work? So they can follow us on
2: Instagram or Facebook, we, uh, YouTube. We have a lot of social media channels that we've used over the years um, at Caputo Brothers. Uh, you can also, on our website, we have a lot of good information up there, including demonstration videos and access to buy all of the cheeses. Probably the call the first call to action I would say is just to start looking at the ingredients. Don't take things for granted. Turn around that package in the grocery store and see what's in it. You know, there there are so many things, simple things we can do, like stop buying your cheese grated because you're paying for cellulose. Okay? Buy the cheese whole. It's better anyways. That's an easy one. That's an easy one. Super easy moment, right? So why, why pay a packager and someone who's taking this beautiful cheese that someone made and grading it and adding all these fillers to it and then upcharging you for it for convenience. I actually had a woman, I spend a lot of time in giant food stores now that we have this partnership with them. And I had a woman who loved our mozzarella and she would not buy it because she buys her mozzarella pre-sliced. And I was like, are you, I mean, are you serious? Like, she was like, I cannot slice my own mozzarella. And I was like, tell you what, I'm gonna go slice this mozzarella for you. Because if that is the barrier here, you know, but think about that. Somebody made that cheese, and now extra processing has to go on that's making that cheese more expensive, that's not going back to the dairy farmer. So buy the cheese in its purest form. If you can buy it directly from the cheese maker, bonus. Okay? Most cheesemakers, you can buy on their website. So you find a cheese that you really like somewhere, hop on their website, and you can probably have it shipped cheaper than you bought it at the store directly to you, okay? So that's a a great thing that you can do, and that's putting all that money directly back into your your cheesemaker, who hopefully is then paying your your farmer a dairy price. If you have a cheesemaker that you love, talk to them. Ask them what they pay their dairy farmer, okay? Okay. I mean, that's a simple question that literally every cheesemaker knows the answer to. They know exactly what they pay per hundredweight, okay? And then, you know, everybody wants to blame somebody for this, right? It's not, it's not that we have an issue with the way that dairy is priced or we have an issue with the way we're educating people or the way that farms are being run. The issue is that Americans are drinking too much nut milk, I mean, is that a part of the problem? Is that a symptom? Should it be called milk? No, it isn't. Should vegan cheese be called cheese? No, it's not. Okay. So, but is that what's really wrong with the dairy industry? No. We have to fix what's really wrong with the dairy industry. And getting involved in things like, how can I help build a nano creamery in my area that would help my dairy farmers and support it? Or... You know, I mean, it sounds like a monumental thing, but it's actually not. It's not. And odds are there's some grassroots effort in your neighborhood that's doing that. You just haven't looked for it. And if you're listening to this podcast, then you're somebody who should be looking for it. Right?
0: Yeah. It it really is as simple, too, as just looking within the region. I mean, we get a lot of questions about how do you approach a cheese counter or a cheese case. Start with your home county or your home state. Like, we're in Pennsylvania Seek seek out Pennsylvania dairy and cheese. That's the best thing you can do to prop up the industry. And it's so simple. And cheese is not scary. Like, people are willing to try whatever craft beer comes down
2: the pipe. Like, put peanut butter in it. I'll drink it. Make it with jelly. I'll drink it. I'll try it, you know. You put you know mold on the outside of ricotta salata, and people are like, "I don't know." I just <laughs> looks say pretty crazy, yeah. I just say fermented with milk in the same sentence, and people—you can see there'll be people in the audience who will shiver, like, <laughs> "Ooh, fermented milk." And you're like, "Do you not eat cheese?" And they're like, "Oh, oh. I do." Okay, fermented grape juice. People were like, "Yes, fermented grape juice." Okay. So don't be scared. Like, don't be scared. That's what's cool about the mozzarella, right, is the gateway cheese. So once we hook people and we're like, this is fermented milk, they're like, oh, maybe it's not scary. Once we get people to eat regatta salata with a little mold on it, then we're like, oh, okay, you can do this. Like, once we, you know, have people, like, close their nose and eat a washed rind, which are the best cheeses in the entire world, Okay, then you train your nose just like you don't start off with a Cabernet Sauvignon if you've never drank wine before. Maybe you do start with a white Zinfandel, okay? And you work your way into it. But so that's what you can do. Like go to your cheese counter, get whatever scares you the least, eat it. If you love it, then get a little more brave.
0: Yeah. I think that really ties in with your messaging of um, letting go of fear. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Approaching the unknown with some curiosity and sense of adventure like you have in your journey? That's, I mean that's what I want to ask people like
2: what happened to you in your childhood that when I ask you if you want to try a sample of mozzarella you go oh no thank you <laughs> is that really I mean is this scary to you because if it is we need to have, we, let's have some conversation
0: <laughs> do you want to give a shout out to your biggest champions uh, right now certainly giant food stores absolutely. To be one of them. absolutely so shop a giant everybody shop a giant yeah
2: I mean I Pennsylvania will, yeah Pennsylvania brand I, I will tell you Um, you know, say what you want to about them being a conventional grocer um, from the CEO all the way down to the to the folks working in the store and everybody in between. They have put the full weight of whatever they can into. In fact, I was I was talking to one of the executives uh, just before I, I came in today and he said, listen, Ren, we need to use Caputo Brothers Creamery as a model of what good looks like and how a conventional grocery store can work with local Artisan suppliers, and I said I agree 100. percent And I think, you know, when you have a retailer like that who is willing to say we're going to step outside the box and figure this out, that's powerful because they have they have a retail muscle like I couldn't comprehend. I thought I knew, but I just can't comprehend. Um, The chefs, you know, if you go on our website and you put your zip code in, it'll tell you what the closest place is to you that that uses our cheese. And we try to keep it as updated as possible. You know, we have folks who've been with us since the early years. Our first pizzeria in Hoboken still buys, you know, 100 pounds of cheese a week from us. Um, and is one of our biggest advocates and and really has continued to help us push forward. You know, it's, it's really, there's so many, and it's Dozino, so if you're in Hoboken, that's where you should go. Um, but, I, you know, I really think that the main shout-out I want to give is to, to dairy farmers and to cheesemakers who are literally doing everything they can every day to, to try to help this economic situation, when people continue to say they, the government's fault is this, or Trump did that, or the trade wars and all of this, none of that actually impacts the dairy and the, the cheese that's being made in my region if me and all of my neighbors are supporting that. Right? It insulates them from all of those things happening. So the more we do that, then we don't have to worry about what's going on outside. Of our little circle because we we got their back. We've got their back.
0: There it is. Well, Rin, it's been an honor talking to you today. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks for for having me. For all the work that you do and for inspiring us. I mean, gosh, that's such a big reason behind this podcast. We talked about you know being in isolation and um, having this work be pretty pretty lonely sometimes. And um, if. Other cheesemakers and dairy farmers out there are listening. Please fill out our survey so we know who you are, first of all. (laughs) Where can they find it? They can find it on our website, collectivecreamery.com, and in the show notes of this episode, wherever you find your podcast. Um, Because we don't know who you are. We don't know who's listening. So tell us who you are. We'd love to direct the conversations to you. Um, And I would mention I was at the
2: farmhouse in the giant farm farm show, the Pennsylvania farm show a few weeks ago in the giant booth. And we saw like 10,000 people. We gave out samples like I couldn't believe. And there were at least five people who came through who I got to talking to about cheese. And they were like, oh, do you know this collective creamery podcast? And I was like, what? I do. <laughs> oh, there um, go. And so, yeah, it's getting out there, guys. People are paying attention. So that's awesome.
0: It's good to know. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Rin. Mm-hmm. Thank you. We look forward to following all the good things that you do. Cheers. Yeah, Cheers. Salute.
2: cheers. Thank you,
0: ladies.
2: Collective Creamery
0: is Stephanie Angstadt, Sue Miller, and Alex Jones. Jordan Heil produced the podcast, and Mike Lorenz wrote our music. You can hear him on Thursday nights at the Tired Hands Brew Cafe in Ardmore, Pennsylvania. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. You can learn more and subscribe to our cheese subscription at collectivecreamery.com.